0: What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads a newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail.
1: This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Let's talk about sound.
2: In today's world, sound is a very important part of the way we interact. In fact, a great deal of the information we take in is not visual or textually based, but comes through our auditory pathways. That is why speaking and listening, both sound-based activities, are critical components of literacy we advocate for here at Rachel's World. The researchers at the Auditory Neuroscience Lab of Northwestern University agree that sound impacts us in powerful ways. Researchers at the lab are looking at the ways that our brains work to process sound, and they have found that these processes are very complex and often impact other learning skills and abilities. For example, they found that looking at a way a brain processes sound can help us predict a child's ability to read. So what are some of the practical implications of all of this? One of my favorites comes from the research findings that there are biological benefits of music training for the developing brain. So this means we should get our children involved in music and music education as early as possible. There are lots of good ways to do this. First, we would hope that students have ways to engage with music in their traditional schooling. Many schools have music specialists that help classroom teachers incorporate music into their curriculum, and other schools offer early learning opportunities that allow children to play instruments. If these kinds of opportunities are not available, then let's advocate for them, because who does not want the kinds of cognitive, emotional, and educational benefits that come from learning music? There are also lots of opportunities outside traditional schooling, Many music studios offer courses for even the youngest musicians. Additionally, groups like the Organization of American Kodai Educators works to realize a world where the power of music is a unifying, humanizing, and healing force that is an integral part of the lives of all people as they train educators and provide structures that allow learners to engage with basic musical skills. So no matter which approach you take, let's pay more attention to the literacies of sound as we work to build our children's brains
1: through music. You want a little humor? Well, you're not alone. Just about everyone does, and children are hardly an exception. In fact, one of the best ways to get children reading is to offer them enjoyment of something funny. Our first guest today, educator and author Mary Bigler talks to Rachel about why she thinks humor and books for children is important and that this type of book can boost a child's desire to read. Mary also will recommend books with jokes, riddles, tongue twisters, and more. Titles we can share with our children, friends, and family. Once a preschool teacher and now a professor... Mary Bigler has spent her life promoting literacy and celebrating the joys of teaching. She's an award-winning professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Eastern Michigan University and author of Lessons Learned. Here's Rachel and Mary Bigler.
2: We're on the phone today chatting with one of our favorite guests here at World's Awaiting. Welcome, Mary. Well, good morning or afternoon
3: or good day. I'm always delighted to visit with you and your listeners.
2: Well, I am excited to visit with you today because we're going to talk a little bit about humor and just fun books that just allow us to laugh and enjoy lots of fun humor with kids. And I think that's so important. Laughter is a fundamental part of our lives and should be, especially with parents and kids. And so to jump in, tell us a little bit about what, what is the purpose or why do you think humor is important for, for kids and, and especially kids and books? Well, what the
3: research tells us is that when we interview children between the ages of 6 and 14 and we ask them what they look for most in books, somewhere between 70 and 80% of them say books that make them laugh. And so if we know that children enjoy books that make them laugh, we adults need to be finding out what kind of books do they find funny, and we won't have any problem getting them to read. If that's what they like, that's what we should be giving them. So I always tell teachers and parents that if I could only use one kind of a book to get children to see how much fun it is to be a reader, I would use joke and riddle books.
2: So let's talk a little bit about joke books. So tell us about what, what you would consider to be a joke book or a riddle book, and then maybe suggest a few for us.
3: There are so many fabulous ones. I love knock-knocks, because even three-year-olds laugh at knock-knock jokes. Even if they don't get the humor, they understand that they're supposed to be funny, and they'll laugh. So I love knock-knock books. For example, uh, knock-knock. Who's there? Avenue. Avenue who? Avenue baby sister at my house.
2: <laughs> That's delightful. <laughs> or
3: knock-knock. Who's there? Amusing. Amusing who? I'm using the phone right now.
2: <laughs> See, <laughs> knock delightful. Knock? Who's there? Harmony. Harmony who?
3: Harmony people have been knocking on this door. <laughs> <laughs> now, I can use knock knocks with preschool children, and I can use them with my eighth graders or high school kids. And they all appreciate that. So there's all kinds of wonderful knock-knock books. I enjoy one for the little children called Super Knock Knocks, and then Kids' Funniest Knock Knocks, also by the same author, Charles Keller. And really, I can use knock-knocks with any child to to show them how much fun it is to be a reader. After I've explored that genre, I like to switch to my second favorite tool to get kids to laugh, and those are tongue twister books. They're deliberately designed to be challenging and fun to read because our our tongue kind of trips over our teeth when we're trying to recite tongue twisters. Now, I have read tongue twisters to children for many, many years. My favorite tongue twister book is by Joseph Rosenblum, just called Tongue Twisters. And there are short two-word tongue twisters and then the phrases and the sentences. And the favorite of the children in first, third, fifth, seventh, and ninth grade, they all va- voted the same one, the best one in the book and it's called Betty Botter. okay'll so I'll do it for your listeners. Here okay we go.
2: okay you've had you've had practice at this, so we're I we're good a lot. <laughs> okay good good.
3: <laughs> Betty Botter bought some butter, but she said the butter's bitter. if I put it in my batter, it will make my batter bitter But a bit of better butter that would make my batter better. So she bought a bit of butter better than her bitter butter and she put it in her batter and the batter was not bitter. so it was better. Betty Botter bought a bit of better butter.
2: <laughs> Standing ovation! Yay!
3: <laughs>
2: that was delightful. I love it.
3: Well, and then the children like to practice so they can get them faster than I can read them, you know. And and I tell them they have to try to get it under seven seconds, and they'll read it again and again and again, you know, and it's so much fun. And we have a tongue twister bulletin board and a joke and riddle bulletin board because I know how much the children enjoy them.
2: Well, and I, I love that sense that it's enjoyable and that kids love to play with it, but it also is a very great way to engage them with language and kind yeah. of phenomic awareness and other really important structures, particularly beginning readers who are learning how language patterns work and how they all delve into that. So I, I think there's, you know, besides the humor, there's definitely a connection here in a more deep way to all of that kind of language learning that is important. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely true. That brings us to another feature that children find funny in books, and that we would call wordplay books. And one of the funniest reads of the last several years is B.J. Novak's The Book With No Pictures. And I'd encourage all the listeners out there to watch B.J. Novak read that book, his own book, on YouTube because he is a stand-up comedian, and he knows how to have fun with language, and it's just a fun experience for you and your children to watch together because the book features a lot of silly nonsense words that are just fun to say, like blork or blaggety or glug, just made-up words, and you can't help but laugh when you read or hear them. And again, your point is that they learn about phonemic awareness and they learn about phonics. They learn about the sounds of language when we're making up words that don't really exist. Who can forget Peggy and Herman Parrish's Amelia Bedelia, who Mm -hmm. takes everything literally? Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) So, So when Mrs. Rogers tells her to pitch the tent, Amelia doesn't understand what that means, that it means to set it up, so she just throws it away. She pitches it. Or when Mrs. Rogers asks her to dust the house, she puts dust and dirt in the house because she takes everything literally. And those word play books are a wonderful source of humor, and children understand the humor. So I think that's another wonderful way to get kids engaged with reading is to share those word play books.
2: I love this sense of just finding the humor in language and finding the humor in that kind of play. Now, I will say that there are some books for children, particularly, that the humor really isn't for us as adults. Sometimes there's some humor that, that is particularly childlike humor or children's humor. So what about those kinds of books where we might kind of press the, press the boundaries?
3: You are absolutely right. And I think the two things that I think of when you say that are the scary stories And then the gross, crude kind of stories. Let's start with scary stories. Most adults don't like to be scared, but children laugh at scary stories. John Stone's The Monster, at the end of this book, features Grover from Sesame Street, who begs the reader not to continue reading the book because there's a monster at the end. And he's afraid of monsters. So he does some hilarious things to get the reader to stop reading. And he is very relieved and a little embarrassed when he discovers that he is the monster at the end of the book. Now, young children think that's very funny, even though it's kind of scary. And some parents sometimes will say, well, I don't want to read that. That's, that might frighten the children. I think sometimes adults are more frightened than the children. Yeah.
2: Yes, I agree. <laughs> and,
3: well, you know, the perfect example, Roll Dahl. Third, fourth, fifth grade children love Roll Dahl. Now, he features some very dark but funny characters in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, Fantastic Mr. Fox. And if you're looking for books for middle school and high school children that are scary and funny, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events are, as one of my seventh graders put it, the bomb. (laughs) They love those books. Now, as an adult, I, I don't think they're very funny, but the children certainly do, so Sometimes we have to say, okay, this isn't our kind of humor, but, but the kids like it. And I would say that same thing about kind of the gross and crude books. Every parent and teacher of boys knows that gross and, funny, or gross and crude can be very funny to the boys, especially. There's a reason 38 million copies of Dob Toki's Captain Underpants are in print. Dov was a former teacher, so he knows what appeals to young boys. And when his characters, George and Harold, draw naughty comics... Uh, featuring Captain Underpants, laughter will be heard throughout your home or school. And um, probably my favorite gross kind of book, My Little Sister Ate One Hair, and I love the author's name. I think this is so ironic. Bill Grossman.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. With a name like that, you have to write gross funny books. (laughs) That's exactly so. And um, this is a counting book for
3: children, and uh, a rhyming book, and I love to read it. It's rhythmical. Um, I'll just share a couple of the first pages. My little sister ate one hair. We thought she'd throw up then and there, but she didn't. My little sister ate two snakes. She ate two snakes, for heaven's sake. She ate two snakes. She ate one hair. We thought she'd throw up then and there, but she didn't. Now, of course, you keep reading, and it's just one gross thing after the other until you get to number 10. My little sister ate 10 peas, but eating healthy foods like these makes my sister sick, I guess. And then you turn the page, and it says, oh, my goodness, what a mess. The children call it the throw-up page because all the things she ate are in this awful picture. It's just terribly gross. But (laughs) the boys and girls think it's so funny, and they're looking for the ants and the snakes and all the things in the picture. Now, adults don't find that funny, but boys and girls do. So when you talk about pushing boundaries, sometimes we have to say, okay, if this is what the children enjoy, we can give them a little of this in their diet, just like we give them cake and ice cream. And we want to make reading fun for children. So if they like that, I'm going to have a little bit of that in their diet.
2: Well, and I, I like that, too, because I think that there's definitely this sense that some people find it humorous and some people don't. And we need to find, we need to find that place. Yes,
3: Funny yeah. is a relative term, and our sense of humor is as individual as our fingerprint. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you, Mary, for sharing with us today some, some wonderful humorous books. Oh, I'm tickled to do that.
1: Educator and author Mary Bigler, talking about the importance of humor in books for children. Next on World's Awaiting, Rachel welcomes Amy Minor, who discusses the importance of teaching our children a skill set that she calls Democratic Literacies. This skill set includes being well-read, more tolerant of others, and open to communication with people not like ourselves. Now, doesn't that all sound like a recipe for good citizenship? Dr. Miner is a professor of teacher education at BYU. She specializes in curriculum and instruction with an emphasis on social studies and democratic practices. She also has a master's in children's literature. Here's Dr. Amy Miner and World's Awaiting Host, Rachel Wadham.
2: Welcome, Amy. We're so glad to have you today. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. You know, one of the things that we need to think about, especially here in the United States, is when we talk about literacy, it's not just about job skills or being you know, contributor to the world. It's a very fundamental thing that we need for our democracy to work. Literacy is so much a part of our democratic process. So what... What issues do you think parents need to be aware of that that help them understand how literacy and democratic participation
0: coincide? It's a good question. I think fundamental to democratic literacies is literacy in general, literacy and numeracy. We have to prepare our kids with the fundamental skills so that they can engage in these kinds of conversations At the heart of democracy is engaging in deliberation. And so associated with those kind of deliberations are being able to read and understand issues, being able to have some contextual background so they know where to put that in terms of history, in terms of current events. Deliberations are founded on the idea that that's where we bring issues to public or issues to a conversation. And that's where we deliberate with the intent of coming up with a solution to a problem. So inherent in that are skills of being able to articulate an argument, to be able to listen, to be able to respond politely and with tolerance. Uh, There's skills associated with being able to debate and to take on a different perspective other than your own. So a lot of that is – teaching them how, but then giving them lots of opportunities to be comfortable with it.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things with all of this is sometimes we think of literacies as a very solitary practice, right? Reading Mm -hmm. a book or writing something that can be very solitary. But when we think about these democratic literacies, discussions and, you know, debate and all of these things you've been mentioning, it very much is a social construct. And that's what so much about this kind of democratic literacy is, is providing our kids with this social construct in order to engage with these literacies at a very unique level.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important that those happen in public spaces because one of the foundations of democracy is public space. You can look at some of the work of Parker Palmer, John Goodlad, John Dewey. You can can look at not only the education theorists but also the democratic theorists, and all of those are building on this concept that in public spaces – Things can happen that can't happen in private. That's why I think schools have to pick up some of the stewardship for this literacy training, whether that's public schools or private schools or charter schools. It doesn't matter. But whenever we can get kids into spaces to interact with people who are different than themselves, then that becomes an important, authentic um, practice in democracy. I had my students doing a lot of readings to understand what's the history of democracy. What did it look like in Greece? What did it look like in Rome? What does it look like in South Africa? What does it look like in the United States? So that they understand this is a bigger, broader concept than a form of government, which a lot of them think it is. But then they start actually seeing how these principles overlay into different communities, different societies. And then they're able to engage in not only the skills, but the actual language and vocabulary associated with democratic literacies. Well, and
2: that too especially looking at it from all the different aspects, brings in that universality that we're talking about and, and ways we communicate across cultures and across people. And that is a fundamental literacy as well, as mm-hmm. how do we communicate with people that aren't like us or who might not communicate in the exact same way we do? And that's a fundamental part of being able to participate in the democracy is that kind of cross-communication between similarities as well as differences.
0: Right. And at the heart of it for me is a definition around being a global citizen. Mm, yeah. This is so much bigger than being a local citizen and in the schools we we have a curriculum scope and sequence that starts with you know teaching children how to behave in their local neighborhoods and their local communities but very quickly by about age 12 we're really trying to teach kids how to interact as global citizens. And with technology and with the way that society set up, if we're not engaging in some of those technology-based literacies, the new literacies, um, and in, and teaching our children how to use social media and technology and ways to communicate with each other, we're also not providing them with the skills that they need. And so I think that as not only are we providing them with the language, the vocabulary, the history, the culture – we're also providing them with the motivation, the commitment to engage with each other. Whenever we see students who are recycling, who have um, a commitment to the environment, a commitment to people who who live across the planet, we're we're teaching them how to become global citizens. And I actually think our children today are much more prone <laughs> to becoming global citizens than maybe my generation or even a generation yeah. before me. Because in their minds, they've been interacting globally since they were very young children, you know, where maybe the scope and sequence of done in 1916 would have been, oh, these kids don't have that exposure until they're in college. So, yeah, I think creating those spaces are really important for kids.
2: Yeah, and I think especially the, the sense of geography that you were talking about before before is really important to this as well because really those barriers have been broken down. There's there's fewer, even though they still exist, there's fewer of those geographic barriers that prevent us from from getting in touch with each other and seeing what other people are doing. So being able to see that diversity up close and up front and and being able to engage with it at a very personal
0: level and not just st- seeing it far away. And I think one of the things I loved about what you said when you talk about boundaries or borders. Part of what this means in becoming a global citizen is a lot of those borderlands are consistently changing. Mm -hmm. And so geography, what we used to understand as geography is map study and skills, things like that, are no longer the skills we're teaching with geography. We're really talking about how do borders and boundaries change even in our own local communities when we're thinking about different identities, different cultures, different backgrounds. And that's very much a democratic literacy because as we start seeing how those boundaries change, then we see how our role, how power changes, how our influence, and how our ability to make a difference changes.
2: Yeah, and I think that really shows us how we – fit in the world in a very different yeah. way. So not only does it show us a more sense of this global community, but it also shows us a very unique sense of our individual yeah. role in the community and how we fit in and and what we can do as individuals to make a difference. Yeah.
0: And if we don't do that, we have a generation who becomes very apathetic yeah. and who believes that democracy doesn't apply to them, who believes that this community is just a place where I live. And we have to find a space where we create not only the knowledge but the skills and the dispositions for the future of our democracy. Right now we're dealing with a generation that doesn't believe that it matters. And so we have have, as stewards in education and as parents and as community members an obligation to really prepare them so that not only can they interact but that they will choose – to make a difference in those places.
2: Yeah, and that's a big part of it. It's that choice. It's not just a can I, it's a will I yeah. make that choice to participate. And and that's one of the things that developing these literacies from a very early age will help them be ready to participate. We can't wait until, you know, they get to voting age. <laughs> we right. have, to, we right. have to start
0: early. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Suddenly care about that. I think that there's a lot of opportunities, even with really young children. There's a A theoretical mind shift in terms of how we view citizens. And Mm. five to ten years ago, we always thought of them as people who were 18 and older. Now there's a shift globally, internationally when you think about the human rights of the child. A lot of those kinds of documents and approaches to protection and rights and responsibilities – are taking the shift to thinking about children as citizens now. How do we protect them, how to prepare them, how do we engage them in that work. That that's a big shift. Mm, yeah. And as we start making that shift, then it changes what we teach and how we teach and how we engage them.
2: And I think you can see that shift very clearly even in children's media. I think about oh, yeah. I think about some of the traditional children's television shows or traditional kind of children's media conglomerates what they're really trying to do is is get people to be more activists and you you see good characters, even, you know, Dora the Explorer and stuff, they're really trying to develop this kind of basic um, sense of what it
0: is to be in this global environment. And I think that's a theme that's been around for a while. You know, if you go back and look at Wizard of Oz, political overtones and undertones. But I think that the literature that our kids are exposed to today and that they engage in, they not only understand those themes, but they understand them as being political themes for them to engage in. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing new world that we're yes, engaged in. Thank you so
1: much, Amy, for your time
2: today. You're
0: welcome. Thank you.
1: Dr. Amy Miner talking about the democratic literacies our children need to become better citizens, both in the community and in the world. We finish up the show today with a book review from Margaret Neville, children's bookseller at the King's English Bookstore in Salt Lake City. Neville introduces a middle grade novel entitled Ghost by Jason Reynolds.
4: Aimed at a middle reader audience, uh, eight and up, Jason Reynolds, who's been writing novels for a while, has written a new book called Ghost. Ghost is the story of a young man who lives in a project and Ghost finds out that he is a good runner. When he and his mother run for their lives from their father who is trying to shoot him, shoot them. That sounds a little bit scary, but sadly many people deal with those kinds of situations in their own home and we just don't know about them. Anyway, ghost life changes a little bit when his father is his father's basically taken away. Ghost and his mother are doing their best to make it. And it's a family where money has to go to food and to shelter and to, you know, school books. Ghost, uh, almost by accident, ends up trying out for a local track team. He's got good speed, and so he makes the team. Well, Ghost has to decide. He has to follow the coach's rules to stay on the team, and one of those rules is to stay in school, not miss any school, not to get in trouble at school, to do your homework. All those things that we as adults think are important Can <laughs> don't a little sympathetic to the kids here. Um, but ghost ends up making a pretty serious mistake and the reader gets to follow the journey from there. I, I like this book because normally I'm not, I'm not a fan of those books where the message is in my face. I like to find it. I'm, you know, I like, and I think it works better for most readers to find it versus, you know, here it is. Uh, but this book, and there's not really surprises in this book, but I like the integrity of the characters. I liked how I believed what was happening was authentic. And sometimes when you're, I'm reading stories about things I don't really know much about personally, it, the, when it seems real, it works better. And I felt like this book, he did a really good job. Ghost has some hope and maybe that's the best it'll ever be for kids like him but i'm hoping not you know so terrific book not too long that's the other nice thing about it less than 200 pages uh really make a great read for uh for that reluctant boy who doesn't want a lot of book uh, or a lot of story certainly fits into the that movement we have that huge movement books of kids of color Uh, the fact that he is African American though is I think somewhat irrelevant I think really the bigger story here is how the poverty works that's a grown up point of view but um, I like the story I I thought that uh, Reynolds did a good job
1: Margaret Neville children's book buyer at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City reviewing Ghost by Jason Reynolds we'll look forward to more young reader book reviews from other librarians and booksellers in the future For a full collection of book reviews, check out the World's Awaiting Book Reviews link on our website at byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio Sirius XM Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.